This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to spend the hour today on the mega fires engulfing much of the West Coast from Southern California to the Pacific Northwest with writer, historian, urban and environmental theorist Mike Davis, traditional land steward Ali Meadows Knight, and our own Melissa Figueroa, urban geographer and activist for environmental and social justice. Our imaginations can barely encompass the speed or scale of the catastrophe we're undergoing, along with the pandemic, and the headlines match the story, describing the red, orange, and black skies as the reality of climate change and accelerating apocalypse. Our guests help us understand this new reality and how we got here, but also what alternative traditions of land management can be utilized. And here we mean indigenous ecological knowledge and methods to radically change the way we deal with these megafires. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Here with you in the middle of, I guess, what we're going to call apocalyptic accelerationism, California's apocalyptic second nature. We're going to spend the hour talking about the fires, climate change, and everything that comes from this. We begin with Mike Davis, and later in the program, we're going to be joined by Melissa Figueroa and Ali Meadows Knight. But Mike has just posted an article on the website Solidarity Above the Crisis, and he ends that article with these words. A new profoundly sinister nature is rapidly emerging from our fire rubble at the expense of landscapes we once considered sacred. Our imaginations can barely encompass the speed or scale of the catastrophe. And of course, he then says, gone, California, gone. Well, Before we go into all of that, I must introduce Mike. He's, of course, a historian, activist, prolific author, and we've had him on very recently to discuss his latest book with John Wiener, The Monumental Study of L.A. in the 60s, called Set the Night on Fire. We are now on fire, I guess. (laughs) And he's been writing about COVID and pandemics, and his new book there is The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu and the Plague's of capitalism. He's also written in the last, oh, literally two years, Old God's New Enigmas, Mark's Lost Theory, and uh, before that, Planet of Slums, Late Victorian Holocaust, Ecology of Fear, City of Courts. There's a thread there, and I'm so glad that Mike is with us. So before we begin, Mike, and welcome you. I just want to go over the lead headlines in the New York Times for the last couple of days. Uh, Friday said, If climate change was a somewhat abstract notion a decade ago, today it's all too real for Californians fleeing wildfires and smothered in smoke, the worst fires on record. And another headline was, there's been nothing in living memory like it. It's apocalyptic. And then Saturday's headline is, blazes untamed, officials prepare for mass deaths. That in itself is pretty extraordinary. And if we look at this, you know, apocalyptic situation that's literally engulfing the West Coast from Southern California to the Pacific Northwest, we see the signature and everybody's seeing it across the world in the photographs of these red and orange 
landscapes or firescapes, I guess you could call them, uh, mostly in the San Francisco Bay Area where they've had darkness for 24 hours sometimes. And people are spontaneously referring to this firescape as post-nuclear, a kind of nuclear winter or end days. So we're going to talk to Mike about what's accounting for these fires. What is the relationship of this accelerating apocalypse to climate change? And Mike, human behavior, of course, is what everyone says. It's pretty straightforward. And that's chiefly the burning of fossil fuels, release greenhouse gases, and they increase temperatures, making for longer and hotter summers and reducing rainfall, making for longer droughts. You've been writing about this for a long time and plus creating desiccation forests that are primed to burn. But now we have the hottest August on record. And last Thursday, 10 of the largest wildfires in California history, all at the same time. So, you know, it's sort of like every new thing I'm going to say is a little bit more catastrophic than the last. But uh, we also see this now in Oregon, Colorado, Utah, Arizona. I'm waiting for Montana to come on board. So the bottom line of your article, Mike, that you posted essentially takes it from there. And you refer to Australia's Black Saturday forest fire in 2009, pretty apocalyptically, where you say that scientists calculate that the released energy equaled the explosion of 1,500 Hiroshima-sized bombs, and that these firestorms are many times larger. So how do we begin to understand these catastrophes? What is the situation? Well, let me begin with a story. Uh, Three or four years ago, I wrote an article about the fires. And in the conclusion, I said that what was most disturbing of all the great fires that year, I think this was 2017, was the fact that Greenland was burning. There were wildfires in southern Greenland. This time around, and not to minimize the horror of the firestorms, the fire that riveted my attention and really sent chills up my back was the burning of the eastern Mojave. Now, we're on the way to Las Vegas, and if, unlike Hunter Thompson, you're not hallucinated, you'll pass an exit that says SEMA Road. It's a little two-lane blacktop, and it's the portal to one of the most magical forests on earth, the largest and oldest Joshua tree forest. We're talking about monarchs of Yucca, 50 feet tall, a thousand years old. And I've been there dozens of times. They mantle a series of Pleistocene volcanoes. And it's just an incomparable place. Now, the eastern Mojave doesn't usually burn. It's covered with desert shrubs and smaller cactuses, open areas between them. But now it burns and will continue to burn, perhaps forever, because of the invasion of an exotic that is an alien, imported grass, called red brome. And it provides this continuous understory of fire starter, which now is rapidly reshaping desert ecosystems. And it's very unclear if the big Joshua's will ever reoccur, even if we wait a thousand years. And that is really what the article is about, is irreversible, permanent degradation of the landscapes we love so much throughout California, from the mixed pine and oak forests in the Klamath Mountains to the Mojave Desert 
Sierra foothills. There's not an inch of California that is now not part of this conflagration. And it's true throughout the American West, of course. But Mike, you're also talking about, I mean, I think this is, you know, worth it a moment to just dwell on the fact that these Joshua trees may be gone forever. And in this article, you actually go through and show how, you know, this was transformed, this fire ecology, as you're calling it, and that California is this paradigmatic example of this vicious circle where extreme heat leads to fires that prevent the natural rejuvenation and accelerate the conversion of these landscapes. And I found that incredibly interesting. And I want you to just go a little bit over the history of these changes and explain the way that land was changed through wars, as you say, all the way back to Berlin in World War II, after World War II, and then fires and climate change events. Years ago, I got very interested in the science of dead cities, of cities that have been reduced to rubble by strategic bombing or destroyed by other events. And at the end of the Second War, Berlin became an important scientific laboratory. So much of the city had been leveled and was sheer rubble. The natural sciences, even before the cleanup had began, were studying the reaction of vegetation and the expectation, according to the the ruling theories of the time, is what you should see is the regeneration of the original national, regional vegetation, mixed oak, Pomeranian forest. That didn't happen. These studies continued until the last rubble and bomb landscape was finally removed in the 1980s. The original vegetation never came back started debate over something called nature too. What happened in Berlin is that the intense heat and the pulverization of brick structures changed the soil uh, more or less uh, permanently. And it was a bunch of escaped exotic plants from people's gardens and stuff that took over the bomb sites, especially something called the tree of heaven. And These plants shared, as different as they were in terms of the families they belonged to, they shared a common adaptation. These are plants that had thrived on the terminal moraines of the great ice sheets in the Pleistocene. And they thrived on soils, stony soils, infertile soils. And this was quite a shock. And then that led the same scientists to speculate the nuclear winter might produce a similar kind of second nature over vast areas. Well, since the fires minus radiation are the equivalents of our nuclear winter, it's accelerated the conversion of landscapes. And what is the the terminal state here? What, What is the destination of these changes? It's to create sinister looking weed scrublands In my favorite science fiction novel by the left-wing author, Ward Moore, the book is called Greener Than You Think. And it's about this crazed scientist who develops something to promote the growth of people's lawns. Well, promotes and promotes and never stops. And very soon, Los Angeles is suffocated and devoured by the escaped grass. We're talking now about something similar, a weed apocalypse 
in California. And these plants, the bromes, including my favorite one, which is called rip gut, but there's <laughs> rip brome and other plants, uh, cheatgrass, they thrive on fire. They also thrive on pollution. And after fire, they take over landscapes. They actually produce volatiles, toxics that exclude other things. And formerly, this was considered a problem mainly in grasslands and then in the foothills. Now we're seeing in places like the coastal fir forests and in the Klamath Mountains that these now constitute somewhere between 7 and 20% of the land cover. I mean, this is a formula that will lead to us losing so much of California we love. I need to ask a question that's probably it's an uneducated one, but you talk a lot about these alien grasses and trees that come in and shrubs that are part of the new sort of fire burning kinds of grasses. And I want to talk a little bit more about it, but where do they come from? Are they there that are normally suppressed by the original ecosystem or does the wind blow them in? Do we know? Yes, of course. First of all, they come like eucalyptus trees from other Mediterranean regions of the world, the classical Mediterranean, the Cape area, Western Australia, and Chile. And the Mediterranean landscapes, since the Colombian conquest and the development of world trade, have been constantly sending each other plants which thrive in similar climates, but can prove to be incredibly destructive, like eucalyptus, which is the kind of ultimate fire plant. Others were introduced as fodder for cattle. But the conversion of landscape by exotic weeds who then create or accelerate fire ecologies is an old story going back to the Spanish conquest of California. And some of the most iconic plants of the American West are actually recent imports. Think about tumbling tumbleweed. For instance, you hear Roy Rogers singing in the background. That's a Russian thistle, which has had a devastating impact in terms of fire throughout the inner, inner mountain west. In California, we lost our beautiful native grasslands by the end of the 19th century due to overgrazing. And then, of course, in the 20th century, fire suppression has created monster fires that were extremely rare in the paleo climate record in California, because we did not allow fire-adapted trees like oaks and chaparral to rejuvenate themselves through fire. And you ended up with these immense acreages of unburnt, old, often biologically sterile plants just waiting to explode in fires. And when you have an extreme fire, in a habitat where plants are fire adapted, in fact, it thrived through small-scale burning. It can permanently change the balance of plants, the balance of soil chemicals, but above all, it's the frequency of large fires now. What we're considering anomalous events in 2003, 2008 are now annual events. And I have a really horrifying example of all this, not far from me, Quimaca State Park. My childhood and endless days spent hiking and 
fishing in the park, and it contains a, an unusual tree that it's the only uh, location for this species. Now, it burnt in the 2000s. It's never drawn back, despite uh, heroic efforts by the park managers to replant pines and conifers. It's not recovered. What has flourished are these invasive grasses and shrubs. If anybody's wondering what these things look like, it's not a brome, but it's equally excellent fire starter. Every spring now, our hills eternally turn gold, bright yellow, okay? That's black mustard. It's spread absolutely everywhere. And once these take hold, they're almost ineradicable. What you need to do, burning unless you do it every six months doesn't really help because they're fire, you know, they live on fire. But if you weed them, you have to do it all the time to suppress them. They tried goats and cattle, but they're very ineffective and they, they don't like it. I mean, these are really kind of nightmare devil weed that has now become our constant companion in California. Are these the same as the sweet mustard grasses that say, you know, are all over the north along the Canadian border in Montana? In fact, we call it sweet grass. Yeah, but I'm not sure those are flammable. There's, of course, always been fires on the grazing ranges of the West. But what's happened in the last generation in areas like the cold sage deserts of northern Nevada and, and Wyoming and now in the Mojave and even in the hot Sonora Desert is these grasses are bringing annual fire to deserts where plants are not fire adapted, like the Joshua trees that have existed for a thousand years. But they're everywhere and their appearance in the forest and the significance in terms of combustion and fire is really only like something people have recently grasped. I think that exurbanization is also the major ally of both weeds and fires because everywhere you're building, two-thirds, almost two-thirds of homes built in California in the last generation have been built in high or extreme high fire risk areas. Uh, San Diego County has 60,000 homes already in the pipeline built in you know, the most flammable landscapes imaginable. But what happens then is through road building and land clearance, you make way for the weeds. People on their view lots worry about fire, so they clear all the chaparral or brush away. Then the grasses come, and they don't realize they've actually made their situation worse. This is what a botanical counter-revolution looks like. Is this related, though, Mike, because I was going to ask you about residential development, and I want to talk about the relationship between, you know, climate change and the droughts, the hot droughts, the La Nina backdrop that you mentioned in your article. How do they relate to each other in terms of, you know, creating this firescape, essentially? Well, whenever Governor Newsom or his predecessors talk about fire, they always strike a liberal line. Look, we didn't have these super fires before. This is climate change. We have to act now on climate. California has taken big steps in this, this direction. Okay, that's fine and good that we're acting to begin to solve a global problem. But what you do here and now about fire, 
Now, wildfire fighting is traditionally a kind of war maneuver, you know, where you maneuver around the fire, you set back fires, you know, you need a lot of space and a lot of mobility. But now that there are hundreds of thousands of homes and fire-prone areas, there's enormous pressure to defend house by house. And this has led to increasing deaths and casualties amongst fire crews. It's made firefighting much more dangerous than it was before. What can you do about this? Well, I think two things need to be done. And the first and most important is simply to impose a moratorium on new construction in the backcountry, in the forest, in the foothills. Stop it now and then begin to think about how to, if possible, roll back some of the existing development. But it's just absolutely idiotic to continue development. But it's politically an issue that nobody really wants to touch, except for a few brave environmental souls, because the populations in the exurban Sierra Foothill counties and in Southern California, the last thing they will do is vote for a politician who talks about stopping growth. And of course, real estate development industry is the most powerful single organized political force in California. Right. And when we, in the next segment, we're going to be talking to Melissa and Ali about the kinds of mistaken land management and fire management practices uh, that you wrote about too, and, and almost got lynched for years, decades ago, I think it was, Mike, when you said, let Malibu burn. And now you say, even in this article, that Malibu's on a, a sort of predictable cycle, right? Of when well, these fires yeah, will come. Malibu's an example that because of its topography, the orientation of its steep canyon to the direction of Santa Ana winds, and because of its vegetation, simply burns almost as much as possible. That's why you have a few examples of homeowners who've lost their homes three times in the Santa Monica's. You shouldn't build there. It should be a great state park. But unfortunately, more and more parts of California are becoming like Malibu, And the only real control or restraint on fire is simply biomass, fuel. If you burn enough of it, perhaps you won't get super fires. You could also pave the entire state. That would solve the problem, too. But fires appearing in all kinds of places where it was never expected to happen. The burning of a large part of of suburban Santa Rosa a few years ago. This was not in the mountains or the foothills. This is just a flat residential area in a medium-sized California city. And uh, it was burnt to ash by an escaped fire. Nobody is really safe now in California. And that's why it's so urgent. And this can only come from environmentalists, Native California activists, and from the left, is to focus on this question of uncontrolled real estate development and begin to develop an understanding of the the tasks ahead. The Green New Deal in California, it seems to me, should be, first of all, a jobs program because we need 100,000 kids and people, not slave-like convicts who are forced to fight these fires for a dollar an hour, up there trying to control the weeds, trying to clear underbrush, but this has to be almost a matter of landscape gardening. It has to go on 
constantly because these plants are so devilish in their ability, you know, to regrow and, and thrive. So the left really needs to build an alliance on this issue. Yes, we must act on climate change, but in California, we want to keep what's at the core of our identity and in our hearts. We need to look at the here and now steps. Well, we will be going into that, and I know you're going to stay for the whole hour, but I, I kind of wanted to throw in a, a crazy bonus question to you, Mike, because you wrote about Kropotkin and desertification. That wasn't the word, I think, that, that he used. And I wonder if anything that, that our old friend Prince Kropotkin wrote more than 100 years ago has any application to what we're talking about right now. Well, basically, uh, Kropotkin thought that after the end of the Ice Age, desiccation was a continuing and ongoing phenomena. And a larger part of uh, Eurasian steppes and even its forests were drying out. And this ended up also being a debate about Mars because you have to remember in the 1890s, most people believed that there was extraterrestrial life. You could see it through a small telescope. But Mars was conceived to be a dying planet aridification was reaching its climax on Mars. So this served to uh, dramatize the threat to the Earth by, from its growing deserts. In fact, it's not so far-fetched right now. I mean, we will big debates on the degree of desertification that's occurred. But now it really, really is happening. And we're going to see, for instance... Uh, grass steps turned into deserts. We'll have deserts in our own backyard if we keep going this way. Well, yeah, that's kind of apocalyptic. And I know I posted your article last night and somebody said that this is apocalyptic accelerationism, which I started with. And it does seem like there's a confluence of so many different apocalypses right now, political, ecological, fire, weather, all of it, that it's uh, stunning. And I also wanted to point to an article in The Guardian that talks about how wrongheaded our entire system of fire management is, not in the way so much that, or perhaps it is in the way that we're going to talk about with Ali and Melissa, but also just in, you know, the capitalist sort of incentive of buying these planes that are going to throw fire retardant on forests, but not houses and all the rest of it. So it, it does bring up a lot of questions about the kind of systemic changes we need literally in every sphere. So Mike, thanks for that. And I'm glad you're going to stay on this. Uh, so I want to just introduce our next guest and move into that right now. This, this segment is really taking us from Southern California to Northern California, from San Diego, LA County, literally up through the Bay Area and Butte counties with Melissa and Ali Meadows Knight and how colonization has led to these megafire conditions. And so just to begin, the climate change and the changes in the ecosystem that it's brought is already beginning to drastically affect our lives, as I've just said, in California. But from the perspective of indigenous peoples, which we're going to get into, being here for at least 10,000 years, or longer, the change began a long time ago with colonization, and especially here in California, the gold rush, the genocide of indigenous peoples, and also plays a major factor in setting the stage for megafires. So with the catastrophic fires engulfing the entire West Coast, because we didn't even talk about Oregon, we're finally seeing articles everywhere 
looking at alternative traditions of land management, highlighting especially indigenous methods that's been used. And I, I was noting in some of the articles that some of these methods are also used in the southeast of the United States, where farmers have traditionally burned lands, you know, with nobody really noticing or saying anything. And our guests are going to elaborate. So Ali Metters Knight joins us. She is a member of the Machupta Indian tribe. Uh, she's the mother of five, a traditional basket weaver based in Chico. And she's also the Machupta tribal liaison working to form partnerships for federal forest stewardship, contracting and tribal forestry programs authorized in the 2018 Farm Bill, and she's been a traditional ecological knowledge practitioner, that's T-E-K, and there's a whole website uh, for more than 20 years, collaborating on environmental education and land restoration projects with Chico State University and the city of Chico, and she's the founder of the Chico Traditional Ecological Stewardship Program, and you can read about her work in Chico and Butte County, and wait for it, here's the website, T-E-K Chico techchico.org. And Melissa, our producer, director, everything extraordinaire, also now (laughs) a guest on this show. She's a PhD candidate in geography at UC Berkeley and a faculty owner of the Cooperative New School for Urban Studies and Environmental Justice, and has been a longtime political journalist, educator, and organizer involved in so many movements that it'll make you dizzy if I just start to mention them. And she's now based in Chico and working with Ali on the Chico Traditional Ecological Stewardship Program. So welcome, both of you, to the show. I know you're in Butte County, where two of the most devastating wildfires in California history have hit just in the last two years. So can you, in broad strokes, paint the picture of how indigenous peoples understand the territory now known as California to be in terms of this ecology and its relationship to the fire? And how did that change with the arrival of settlers, colonization, and everything else that followed. And I think when you start, I'd like you to begin as well by just describing the landscape that you're living in. Last night, I went to Purple Air, and I was looking at, you know, for those who don't know it, it gives you the air quality in your region all over uh, the country and probably the world. And where I live, it was 160. And I looked at where you live, it's like 200. But then if you just go east of there, and I couldn't tell how many miles, it was at 700, which is just not even imaginable. So let's start with the firescape you're living in and then go back to this larger question. Yeah, so right now we're living in, you know, it does look apocalyptic. It is kind of a deja vu of campfire of 2018. And so when we're trying to have a restoration projects going in in paradise, we were really looking and knowing the devastation and the potential of what was going to happen in the future. And so it just seems like air quality was one of the least of the problems that we were looking at. And not to minimize it, it was just not that significant when we were really looking even at the bigger picture of California, which has 33 million acres of forest. And 19 million of those forests is federally managed, or apparently federally managed. They're federally owned. California and Newsom are bragging and going, feeling very proud about themselves, about putting together uh, a package of spending half a billion, basically $500 million, 
to manage one million acres out of the 33. <laughs> I think they bragged up until 2035. This is guaranteed to do one million a year, and they're going to spend this $500 million. And it turns out that that's not going to work. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of made the air quality issues and some of the, what we see today feel like just the first sign of some more pending doom and apparent consequences of political decisions and even historical decisions that can't be undone. Hi, this is Melissa. So it's interesting that uh, Mike mentioned the red bromes in Joshua Tree. One of the things we've been up in paradise um, a lot after the campfire, right, in 2018, which for the listeners was the most devastating and deadly wildfire in California history. 86 people killed, the entire town of paradise wiped out. Right now, we're seeing those types of grasses invading the land in paradise right now. It's called scotch broom, so we're seeing a lot of those weeds come up. This is a grass that if you take a green stalk and you light it on fire, it goes like a sparkler. It like It's literally explosive in a fire. And so this thing about second nature that you know was talked about earlier it was you know this is really a reality for us in Butte County and we're seeing it happen and again this is an artifact of colonization which of course Allie can talk about because this is her ancestral territory before we do that I just want to mention too we've we talked about the Paradise Fire with Mike and with you last time it's, I can't believe it's two years ago and also about the fact that the people who built in paradise were rental refugees and elderly people from the too expensive Bay Area. And so they were building in a place that should never have been built, like Mike has said. And yet now, when these fires devastated these homes, I saw on some site that, you know, people have some of them have just rebuilt and now we're worried about their new rebuilt houses being burned. And I was thinking about what kind of management is this that people would rebuild in this same site? You know, <laughs> well, you know, we have to look at the time machine. I know we look at the United States. The United States, you know, we think of 1500, 1600s to begin. The United States is 500 years old. But California is only 180 years old, period. End of story. There is a whole history before 180 years ago, and people have to get that in their minds. For some reason, because of colonization, everybody in the United States and even in California wake up and breathe and believe that time began when the white man showed up to California and made it California. And before that, it's paleo, prehistoric, crazy history. We'll never know. And that's just now how it is. There is a no. I'm a local tribal member, and if you look at 180 years ago, there's certain things that are passed down through my tribe. Yeah, genocide wiped it out. A lot of people were wiped out. A lot of knowledge was wiped out. I'm going I'm to take a nod and acknowledge that. But the truth is that being a basket weaver, I can tell you that a lot of secrets about the ecosystem are woven into those baskets. And all the things that I need to do to take care of those materials and have those baskets are woven in the ecology of the land around me. And it is an imprinted in that pattern. Well, now, moving on to Governor Newsom, he signed this joint agreement with the U.S. Forest Service to reduce dangerous fuels on a million acres, as you've already stated, in California per year. And you're proposing a bold plan for a large-scale indigenous-led land management 
program or programs for these same forests that would restore native ecosystems, including introducing controlled burns to clear overgrowth, as it has been done traditionally by indigenous peoples and as we're learning around the, around the globe by others as well, for millennia based on traditional ecological knowledge. So what is that knowledge and how would this program work differently from what Newsom is proposing? How useful is it? How practical is it given, you know, these landscape that we live in now? And how useful is it in terms of the megafires when climate change is threatening to throw everything out of whack? Well, I think that because we have not really acknowledged the tribes that sit in California, there are hundreds of tribes still in California. And these are sovereign nations. And they have a nation-to-nation relationship with the federal government, Washington, D.C., and a government-to-government relationship with the state of California. And if Newsom wants to say that his government, California, wants to have a relationship with Washington without tribes included, then I guess all the other tribes collectively have to do our own agreement on federal land. And he who manages the land has rights to the land. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this is a great time to do a reversal land grab back on the federal government and for us to manage these federal forests. This is the crazy part where Eamon Bundy kind of led the way, right? Is that not what I always (laughs) reference? Yeah, he did. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm going to take that one. You know, I'm going to look at that that Supreme Court decision and say, let's do this. And so California, we can actually turn this around. And I don't believe that we need any more urban sprawl or developers that don't know anything about land management to touch one piece of land in California, especially in our woodlands and the foothills. They need to back off. But we're going to need to have a crew of people that live up there that know how to manage that. And I think that that is the opportunity that we can have today is to do with the Green New Deal, with tribes, is to take on contracts and do goods for services and actually learn to manage these forests. When we have these big mega fires like we have right now, Bear Fire is burning within 30 miles of me right now. I'll tell you that even if we had managed all of that forest, before that fire came, I think it would still have got hit pretty bad and homes would have went down. There's nothing that can really stop that wall of fire. That is a storm. That is what you don't want in any case scenario. And like I said, it's so hot and it's like a nuclear bomb. It changes everything to where restoration is like a 50-year game. And it takes a crew of people to be on it, on it, on it. And so if that's what we need to do, we need to do. And since PG&E is not our friend, And we actually have, believe it or not, a biomass plant in Oroville, California, that is not being utilized. I don't see why we are not working together with tribes and the counties and with the state. And if they don't want to work, then we should just be able to build partnerships with the communities one-on-one with the tribes and go to the federal government and create this workforce. And the tribes can create certifications for their traditional knowledge and its place base. That means I'm not going to be doing my work in other people's territory. Now, this is Melissa. I just want to elaborate that every tribe in California has an ancestral territory and they have knowledge that is specific to that territory. That's something that knowledge sovereignty held by tribes can actually use, not just for, you know, native peoples. There aren't enough. Like, as Mike said, we need 100,000. We need everybody, all hands on deck to be able to manage these forests. And so... 
The 2018 Farm Bill, ironically signed by Trump, the Native Farm Bill Coalition snuck in, <laughs> so to speak, 63 provisions that actually strengthened sovereignty and allowed tribes to do sole source contracting, meaning to have exclusive stewardship agreements with the Forest Service and with BLM to manage these forests. Now, there isn't a lot of funding for this, right? Our BLM office up in Reading has $50,000 budget to manage 12 counties <laughs> in Northern California in the, in the Sierra foothills. So the trick here is what's called goods for services. Because a lot of traditional ecological knowledge obviously had been developed as a science and a technology to help people survive and also have vibrant livelihoods off of this thing. So part of this is not just about sort of a federally funded program for wage labor. It really pays for itself in terms of being able to make more resilient, relocalized economies based off of the traditional plants, foodstuffs, cordage, medicinals, and also biomass that is on the land. Again, a lot of these things, like the brooms, cannot be composted. They will spontaneously combust in a green waste pile. So it has to be utilized somewhere else. And so something like electricity, biomass electricity, is actually a way to both get off of PG&E, make livelihoods, and also put the forest at least to a, a state where it is manageable. And this brings us obviously to the politics about wildfire and forest management and how, as you say, disaster capitalism plays against what, what you're trying to do, which really sounds sort of like a Green New Deal kind of program. And Mike brought that up. Trump says that, of course, famously and ignorantly, that wildfires are a result of poor forest management. And he blames California not understanding that it's federal land and that he calls for people to rake the forest comically. But can you perhaps address Ali Medder's night, that attitude? What does, uh, say, Trump's idea of forest management, how does that differ from what you're suggesting? Well, there's definitely a difference of how you and we've kind of really got a good idea now of like combating invasive species in California. And to get that, it's saying I'm living in like second gen, third generation apocalyptic California. You know, welcome to the show. Welcome to Hotel California. <laughs> this is what it is because of invasive species, because of mining, because of there's a constant change. There's a constant devastation, a, a creek that's gone, a place that's beautiful is, and been tended to for thousands of years, hundreds of years specifically by a family. And that area is now completely underwater and it's a reservoir. <laughs> that water is owned by a big fancy family, you know, who sends it down. And we basically have the idea of knowing that when I know my traditional knowledge of saying we're trying to get through a star thistle, which is a nasty thistle here in Butte County, that we the behavior of the oaks is that the star thistle does not like canopy. So it needs open wiping spaces. So large canopy of trees are are good. But in the meantime, you can burn them in a certain cycle when they're not seeding, which is just a teeny tiny window period. But it's during a non-fire season. So let's have it, folks. The idea is that, you know, all of us collectively working on this is going to be impossible unless we, you know, have incentives for people. And so 
without these major fires, without people losing property, without California spending, oh, we're going to spend, oh, half a billion dollars to do management, but we're going to spend $40 billion for damage for afterward. And and that's not disaster capitalism, you know. (laughs) And, And that's why it's so hard for us to really push this program unless we can get insurance companies involved and giving people discounts to allow these workforces onto their properties and around their cities and in their urban interfaces that calls through these forests. Because traditionally, all of these federal forests on tribal territory, tribes are still not allowed to manage those forests. And then you have these 180 years of overgrowth. And now that that's burned, it's almost like a reset button. So why are we not sending in and putting these, you know, and if we cannot do the large landscape restoration, then we're really shooting ourselves in the foot because we collectively all have to do this together. Yeah, I think Californians don't even understand, much less the rest of the country and the world, is really the colonial relationship that Northern California has to the rest of the state and to its major metropolitan centers. A lot of people, again, move up to Paradise or to Berry Creek or some of these places because of the beautiful conifers. Those are those are not native. The Douglas firs were put there by logging companies. And actually, you know, Trump's idea of forest management, which is really clear cutting, you're seeing the fire behavior right now, like with the bear fire, that checkerboard pattern of logging forests actually helps to accelerate the spread of fire by creating these air pockets that draw it down and contribute to the conflagration. Southern California, then the Central Valley takes our water, Northern California, the oak and grapevine forests have been converted to timber-friendly species, such as Douglas firs, taking out the fire-resistant riparian trees like alders and cottonwoods. The forest actually looks a lot different today than the way that Ali's ancestors knew it. And one of the things we have to be, uh, as non-natives, as guests on these lands, that we have to be a little humble about to understand that we don't actually know what forests look like or should look like in California. And this is where, you know, tribal sovereign governments, as well as traditional ecological knowledge, needs to be acknowledged as an authority on these matters and that we need to follow their lead in terms of how to how to do the best we can really to mitigate wildfire risk in this new era. Well, I want to just bring up this other issue, which is, you know, kind of problematic in thinking about where to go from here. And we've talked a lot about, and Mike has written about this urban wild land interface and how people like rich people in Southern California and poor people in Northern California that you've just mentioned, Melissa, have been building where really they shouldn't be building Uh, where fires can easily overtake and burn the structures and the people. And then also, even in the structure of land management, even as scientists have persuaded governments that controlled burns are a good thing, and even when they recognize that it's a good thing, they still don't do them very often. And there's all kinds of reasons why they don't do them. And so it's, it's a big question about now, given the situation that we're in, where we have a lot of people and we need a lot of this kind of new practices that you're talking about. And yet we have all these people who want to move into these areas. So is there any way that we can make this situation less dangerous in places like Butte County? Well, you know, there's a pattern here in California. And so since we have 
colonization and this is a brand new state and the whole scheme of things just a hiccup 180 years our next hit is the floods coming so we're gonna have a huge flood so we know that's coming so we're gonna have to have people go up in the foothills and into the woodlands once it's flooded here because everybody in the valley will be under 20 feet of water guaranteed absolutely scientific fact so if we don't learn to get work crews up here and prepare and get a standard and an environmental ethical standard of living that has changed, especially in this area. And we do have fire adaptive plants in Butte County. Most of our indigenous, if not all of our indigenous plants are fire adapted. And that means that some, they need fire to actually get their seeds to go ahead and, and be ready to go. So we have enough plants and seed and behavior with fire adapted plants here to combat some of the invasive plants that are are taking over but we we do we do collectively have to just get a workforce developed get people working getting paid good like the decent like this is traditional ecological knowledge should be not 638 sole source type contracting stuff you get paid upper echelon for this type of knowledge and for doing this type of work and so this should be why people would seek out certifications for tribes because they want the best of the best certification to land manage to get the best pay on those workforce that go up and do this because this is a cycle. And so if you don't want to do it, it's okay. You're going to be forced to do it anyway. As long as we have Mike here too, Ali was just describing the kind of thing that you've written about so much, Mike, and I want to bring you into the conversation for a moment, which is just the sort of disaster movies in Los Angeles that show, you know, not just fires, but flash floods, earthquakes, and all of the things that we see. And maybe I, you know, just sort of bring you into this conversation to talk a little bit about what they're proposing and the political obstacles and the reality that we face given, you know, disaster capitalism. Well, let me first refer to apocalypse and its actual meaning in the book of revelations the apocalypse is the unveiling of the true history of the world not the history written by victors and uh, owners but the history that's been lived by common people itself and what's been happening and what's happening on this program right now is starting to retrieve some of that hidden knowledge of the fact that capitalist civilization, white capitalist civilization in California has been mining and never ceased to mine the natural resources of this state, have just destabilized its ecosystems and have created a corridor for climate change and fire to transform large parts of California into something unrecognizable to us. Also, I wanted to make the point that it's not traditional communities in Northern California or the Sierras. It's not poor people living in some cabins with the problem. But the majority of the homes that have been built in high fire hazard areas are, in fact, homes for relatively wealthy people or more. For instance, here in San Diego, my literary agent, has a huge art gallery, a personal art collection. But her home in Del Mar is too small to accommodate it. And to add on to it would be prohibitively expensive. I'm talking about millions of dollars. But for $600,000, you can go up the mountains 
and buy a home twice as large with a magnificent view in the middle of a forest that's burnt twice in the last 20 years. It's people seeking the view lots. And it's also driven by the racist logic that dominates the recent geography of this country. White people with means fleeing the cities, fleeing a multiracial, diverse society, creating their little fortified luxury redoubts at the expense of the environment. I see this in San Diego County. I, mean, I grew up in East County. And the foothill community of Alpine, it's just, you know, it was a bikers and cowboys and kids who loved horses that I went to school with. Now it, you know, there's a, actually a giant castle up there now. There are these immense homes. And at the end of the day, you have to start talking about how to control the private land market that dictates uh, the shape of our cities, the nature of our lives, the degradation of our environments. As long as corporations, banks, big developers, and insurance companies make all the fundamental land use decisions in the state, our cause is kind of hopeless. They have to be challenged, you know, frontally in the way that some groups have begun to challenge the private utilities. I want to ask a question, just and Melissa, I'll let you come in right now. Maybe you could just address some of this too, because as you were speaking, I was thinking economists talk about what's needed is a shakeout, um, you know, where everything's destroyed and you start all over again. And what we're seeing right now in these mega fires all over, you know, California and the Pacific Northwest, I'm wondering if this is some sort of equivalent of getting all those millions of acres burned that would allow for or would it allow for the kind of land management practices to come in their wake? Well, this is what's so interesting about shakeout, right, and about disaster in California and the particular cycles of disaster that Ali can talk about in terms of the fires and the floods. The environmental challenges that we face now in California really do challenge private property at a very fundamental level. I mean, you can have your property, you can tell everybody to get off your property, But it really doesn't matter if the entire forest is on fire. There were people in paradise who did everything that they were told to, all the defensible space, all of this stuff, and it didn't matter. Everything still burned. These mega fires kind of render that parcel by parcel, individual responsibility types of things really impossible. And so in terms of our settlement patterns, the settlement patterns that have come here through colonization aren't really based on the natural environment. In fact, in 1862, when the last 200-year flood came, Sacramento was under 30 feet of water. Leland Stanford had to take a boat to San Francisco to govern the state. Most of the settlements had been on right on waterways. And apparently some of the articles that we've read on the subject, there are accounts that say that the uh, native peoples mysteriously disappeared before the flood. And it wasn't really a mystery. It was just traditional ecological knowledge. And I think that we need to change the paradigm. You want to take control of the pioneer Wild West type, basically idea of how California was created and turn that around and actually do it with tribes this time using federal. We have 33 million acres of forestry. 
that we can get workforce and tr- crews to do. And those workforce, everyone who's managing that land has rights to that land. And so I think this is a way for people to to work together for land and a right to work, live on that land safely and collectively and know how to utilize the goods for services on that land using the knowledge from the tribe but actually giving that credit to the tribe while doing so. But I think this is the kind of decolonizing way that we can expand our communities a little bit better by being certified and learning to do land management, managing that land and getting rights to that land collectively and working together to have that. And that would open up a new frontier. I just wanted to mention the way that we're having to maneuver tribal sovereignty and sort of the legal sovereign nation status to sort of get around some of these developments and sort of political domination. It's like this political chess game <laughs> that, we're, that we're involved in right now, especially with FEMA and disaster recovery, but also with a lot of people who actually want to build cob homes. A lot of people now are wanting to build cob homes they want to rebuild with earthen buildings and facing so many roadblocks. And so one of the things that's been really interesting is is looking at, Al, you can explain it better, but sovereignty, not just for the ecological restoration, but to really be able to allow for tribal land and trust and have fire safe homes. You can build bridges to the really I've been pitching this idea and it's been tough because it's really nation building, but it's on the whole thing of, What's really important to know is that I don't want to teach people to capitalize, but I wanted people to educate why we had casinos. So the reason why we have casinos is because it's illegal to gamble in the state of California, but it's not illegal federally to run a casino. So on federal trust land, you can do that. Well, you can do also online gaming. And I said, all your cash advance companies now partner with tribes and put their servers on land and trust so they don't have to apply to California law. And they put the tribes as the lead partner of the, and that's pretty dirty. (laughs) But then we also could look at it from other different angles. We could do our own certifications for land management based on our traditional knowledge of our territory. And then once we get managing land, we would actually be expanding our territory, would actually be owning. And maybe you know, we'd be sharing that ownership with other folks that are managing the land. And then it got into the point that we couldn't actually get people, you know, paradise burned down and I'm looking at the land and I'm trying to do plant restoration. And I'm like, huh, there's just so much red clay. So and so much red clay. These plants go with red clay. These plants like red clay. These are fire adapted native plants that like red clay, red clay. Why are we not building cob homes that are fire safe homes in the middle of this area? You know, and I'm like, am I just thinking out loud? Or is this like, and I'm like walking around on like property after property after property, scooping up this red clay going, you should make the law that you can't build your home unless you use materials within 50 miles within your property. That that should be the law. And that would force people to have to use clay and other materials for us to kind of Mm -hmm. do stuff. So I was like, well, maybe if I made it tribal law and put it on the tribal record and then did a building codes to accommodate that law, because it's, you know, makes sense like that, then you could build a land trust and MOU with the county and state and all that other 
to, for people to say, okay, I'm going to put my land I own into your tribal land trust. And I get to live here for as long as I want to with all my, you know, family and friends. I can pass it on to son to son to son to son, daughter to daughter to granddaughter to whoever until it's done. And once it's done and nobody wants it, instead of going to the state of California, it goes to the tribe. Can I ask you both a question about something else? Yeah. When you were in grade school or high school, did you have a class on California natural history? No, I had a comp- my mine was on um, <laughs> no. So I went to kind of an elite school. I was a scholarship kid, and we took a couple trips to Yosemite <laughs> and kind of played with pine cones. <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> did you have? I a got- I think one of the th- simple things we should be fighting for uh-huh. is the compulsory half year on California natural history and native California history. Absolutely. Okay. Because yeah. my kids, you know, apart from me taking them out to the mountains where I grew up, they've learned nothing in school. They can't tell a single piece of native vegetation. They don't understand the fires. And I just, I can't understand why this hasn't become a priority. So I mean, teachers unions should advocate. Absolutely. We've been working with some folks actually from Berry Creek, unfortunately, which burned down a couple of days ago, but they were working on a K through 12 curriculum for, for native students but especially with COVID and outdoor education, TEK yeah, and do. basic ecology. Yeah, she, she's moving on to about your That's what I do. I, yeah. I teach uh, outdoor education, outdoor science. I teach, uh, it's called the Native Station. And so I go, Mon, I kind of did my certification based on what I've been teaching kids for the last 15, 20 years here in the area. And I'm the field trip lady. So I get, <laughs> I get most every kid that's seen through this town. I've seen them through a field trip one time or another. And um, I have a bunch of materials, willow, baskets that I've made, bags, seeds, just a lot of stuff that you want to put your hands in, you know, acorns and things people want, kids want to feel, break. We go through the whole station and we start talking. And by the end of the station, they have five or more, and that's Ma, our language. They've learned two native words. They've learned more than five native plants. And they've also learned two skills of how to find food in this area. And so... That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yep. So we we go through this. So this curriculum that I've been developing has actually been executed. That's kind of where I got, I had to like become like a, a performer all the time teaching because I would just, it would just be like, okay, I do one station and I'd be 30 kids and then they'd move on and the next one and I'd start all over and like, hello kids you know like you know and I go through the whole thing again and the whole thing again so after doing this year after year uh, the kids I was the kids very favorite one and I ended up doing summer camps and so I didn't have a lot of money I'm really poor I've always been super poor never really made any kind of a lot of money on what I'm doing but what I did was I got a bunch of people to sponsor me get like probably about $4,000, $5,000 together. And I would put summer camps on for kids during, and then they could spend a whole day instead of just 20 minutes with me. And that was what they really wanted to spend all day pounding acorns, all day 
feeding pine nuts and eating them and going to a language station. And then we'd have games. So they would learn how to sing some songs and play grass games. And it was native and non-native kids, almost half and half. And so, cause I would invite all the other tribes to come in and then the non-native. So the kids for the first time got to meet a whole bunch of other native kids. When all this happened, it went to a halt, but I'm scheduling one for October 11th here in town, um, 10 kids at each station or 10 people. But all of this is going into collectively a big old curriculum book. And we are working on changing the California. That's my friend, Morningstar, Galia. And I've got all my comrades and friends from Indian country that are really battling and I can't do everything. So they know I'm doing this part of it. And then as soon as they need me, tap me on the shoulder. I think the National Congress of American Indians is going after the curriculum schedule in California. I want to ask one last question of all of you. And Ali Metters, now you've just answered it a little bit. It's sort of like what is to be done question, the age old question. But one of the things that's come out of all of the articles that yeah, you sent me to read in prep, you know, was that uh, prescribed fires or controlled burns are the medicine. But can you burn your way out of climate change and the climate crisis? And so thinking about that, I'd like to ask each of you what you think can be done and is there a way out of this and does it, you know, is it this sort of one of these questions, revolution is the only solution or is there something in, you know, between here and there that, so we can all survive? Well, every place has a different burn regimen. So you don't burn the same place every year. You know, it's not like a disco, you know, you don't do the same thing all the time. You know, (laughs) what you, what it is, is that even in different landscapes, so even when you're in forestry, you're going to have a different burn regimen than you would do on, say, a meadow grassland or certain areas. So some places would burn every 10 years, and some places would be, you know, frequently maybe every three years. And just based on soil and what was necessary, it all plays together with the predators and the wolves on the land and how how much grazing is going on, how much grazing isn't going on. If, are there beavers in the creek? Are there not beavers in the creek? All those things really matter. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is very interesting to me as a trained ecological scientist now studying the science of traditional ecological knowledge is understanding how much of it is really based on uh, adaptation to environmental change. The picture of climate change isn't sort of a disaster movie where there's like, not like the day after tomorrow where there's one big event and then everybody dies, but it's rather a series of more intense and more accelerated changes to the landscape. It was very interesting at one of our presentations, one of scientists raised their hand and said, is there anything that colonizers really contributed positively to the environment? And I said, thank you for satellite imaging, (laughs) right? One of the things about sort of conventional science and working with that in relationship and with tension with traditional ecological knowledge is that, you know, a lot of where Western science goes is just confirming what traditional peoples have known for a long time through long-term observation, experiment, and outcomes and maintenance. And so this is a point where, yes, climate change is going to bring things we've never seen before. But if we can combine the traditional ecological knowledge and and that deep, deep knowledge and the time frame of history and being able to look at landscapes and historical relationships, as well as 
having the latest technology to track fires in real time, to understand what fire behavior looks like, to understand how vegetation comes back and going down to ground truth that this is an all hands on deck moment and we can combine the best of what we all have with indigenous peoples in the lead to to do the best we can as i said you know the revolution may just come whether or not we like we like it or not uh, nature we're not in control of this process but what we can do is adapt ourselves in intelligent ways Mike, I want to leave the last word to you. And I should say that in this article that you wrote, I, your last three words were gone, California, gone. So with this question, what is to be done and what can be done short of revolution or with revolution, how do you address that? Well, we need a class struggle, prescribed burning and even a grudging admission that Native Americans were masterful stewards of the landscape. That's been textbook for 40 years. And you can see how successful it's been. What is the greatest obstacle to gardening our environment? It's the political beliefs and power of the people I've been talking about. The wealthy Californians, you know, who created hundreds of thousands of ex-urban homes. And let's be clear, most of them are non-members of the Sierra Club or the Democratic Party, and they're violently opposed to it. I mean, in San Diego, it's absolutely crazy. After the great fires in 2003-2007, even people in East County voted down a small tax measure to hire more firefighters. They live in this illusion of total autonomy and total sovereignty over everything. I mean, it should be clear that the political obstacle to this are the rich in California— And the rich in California have made, as far as I know, not since the San Francisco general strike in 1934, one important victory for the labor movement, I can't think of a single concession that they've been forced to make. And now we're fighting for the survival of of everything we love in the state and for the, the future for ordinary people in this state to enjoy all the majesty of its landscapes and nature. And we should have been doing this years, years ago. We need to get labor aboard these issues and see it in other ways. It's not just building, you know, alternative energy networks. It's controlling development. And unfortunately, the labor movement in California was for so many years dominated by construction unions who basically would be in favor of, oh, you know, let's pave the Sierras. Why not? It's It's jobs, but the balance has changed. And more socially conscious public sector unions now lead lead the movement, but they desperately need to hear voices like yours and understand what native Californians know that the rest of us are ignorant of, but our survival depends on sitting at your knees and learning some of these lessons. The privilege beyond with all of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I guess that final thing to say is class struggle armed with uh, traditional ecological knowledge is the way to the future. <laughs> Allie Metters Knight, Mike Davis, and Melissa Figueroa, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio.
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.